Welcome to The Adapter's Advantage, the podcast that shares insider stories about breakthrough moments that lead to success. Get ready for an inspiring conversation about adapting to change from Alego, the all-in-one sales enablement platform built for success in a hybrid world. Let's dive right in. Hello, I'm Mark Magnaca. I want to welcome you back to the next episode of the Adapter's Advantage podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have as our guest, Jennifer Stanley of McKinsey. Before we jump right in, I just want to give you a little background on Jennifer. She leads McKinsey's sales and channel management work across North America, and her specialization is in go-to-market transformations for B2B companies in a wide range of highly competitive industries. And you know, Jennifer brings a, a wide range of experience uh, and insights from years of research uh, at McKinsey, and this includes the design of channel architecture to the reorganization of the sales force, including strategic key account planning and the development of capability building programs. She's a frequent author on B2B sales topics and regularly speaks at industry forums. And prior to McKinsey, Jennifer worked in sales and marketing roles herself, and she's also taught sales management at the University of Tennessee at the Business School in Chattanooga. So with that, Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Mark, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Well, I'm very excited to jump right in because we've got so much to cover. So just to you know, set the stage a little bit, you and I have gotten the chance to meet a number of times and I've always been fascinated by your story, uh, this story arc really of sales, academia, entrepreneurship. So before even diving into the work that you're doing, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your journey to date. So um, can you tell me a little bit more about your role now and um, exactly what you do when people ask you the question, so you're with McKinsey, what do you do? Yeah, it's a great, I, by the way, this, the answer that I give to my mother or my mother tells her friends, I think is the, the easiest way to answer it. I help companies grow and that's usually through the sales function, increasingly the marketing function as well, as you well know, the two are inextricably intertwined, but honestly, I didn't, it's funny because in retrospect, it's pretty clear that I had the bug for the sales function and for working um, with salespeople, becoming a salesperson. But at the time, I didn't envision a career in sales. My first actual real job, as in I got a W-2 for it, I worked at, for a department store and was selling perfume at the perfume counters, among other things, wrapped Christmas gifts at the holidays, that kind of thing. And then when I went off to college this summer, uh, before my freshman year, I started off working for a company in their customer service division. And my manager said, hey, I think you might be good on the sales floor. Would you like to try a role in our inbound call center? And I'd never even really thought about an inbound call center before, but I said, sure, you know, why not? I'll give it, you know, I'll give it a go. And so that, gosh, so 16 at the department store, 17, first job in customer service. And then by 18, 19, every single break from school, I was going back to this company and working as an inside sales rep. And then I did that all through college and then all through grad school with the mindset of I'm going off to law school, I'm not going back into business. But then I found myself um, taking a few years to want to explore the business world. And what I'd really known of it was sales um, and some marketing as well. So I kind of came to McKinsey with that lens of, gosh, this is something that's exciting for me. And that was 24 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Never made it to law school. 
I, I understand. And I think um, it, it actually worked out to be a, a wonderful part of the journey because mm -hmm. there's no question you've got a unique perspective and, and frankly, an authority that comes from actually having done this yourself, which really is different than, you know, someone who's only looking at it from a purely academic or, or even consulting uh, lens. So just as we go a little deeper here, Jennifer, you know, I, I think about this phrase that you and I chatted about, the McKinsey you know and the McKinsey you don't know. And, yeah. and like every organization, you know, McKinsey seems to have really changed quite a bit over the last couple of years, especially around talent attraction and development. So in the context of the sales channel, can you just talk a little bit about the kinds of profiles that your team is attracting these days? Yeah, absolutely, Mark. And thanks for giving me the chance to share that. We are known and have been known for so many years for strategic consulting and attracting talent typically from or historically from, it's not so typically typical anymore, an MBA background. But that's the McKinsey you know. The McKinsey you may not know, which is now over half of our firm, are people who don't have MBA backgrounds. They might be doctors, lawyers, political scientists and economists like I am technology and da you know, data scientists, data engineers, technology experts, and former salespeople and sales managers. So we have a whole cadre of people in my team who themselves have led sales transformations in industry on the ground, know what it's like to have a quota, carry a bag, have a team, and you know be in the context of really rapidly changing circumstances and environments in their companies. And those colleagues now work with us, um, helping clients do the very same thing. So it's a great, the McKinsey you may not know is a great blend of yes, classic strategic thinking, but with um, very practical, hands-on experience and the ability to also infuse data analytics, technology into the work with people who are experts in those fields as well. So it's a very different set of profiles that we recruit for. You know, and it's a great example of the power of diversity of thinking to actually make the firm even more valuable beyond just strategy, because now it's strategy plus people who are part of the team who actually have experience with execution and making it come to life. Absolutely. And, you know, our clients don't just value that, they demand that. And I'm sure yours are the same and rightfully so, because they, you know, time is always of the essence. Expertise is always a need. And so you put those two things together and the ability to get very practical very quickly and help people put the idea that you have in your head you know, into play in reality, that's the most important part of getting to impact. And so I'm really excited as I look back, gosh, over the past decade, probably of how we've evolved to have much, much more diverse teams in terms of background, experience, expertise, um, what people studied. You know, when I joined, by the way, at McKinsey, it was still largely, I would say pretty much largely MBAs. And I was part of this first wave of people who did graduate work in law or medicine or social sciences like I did. And so we were quite an anomaly back then. And now, you know, it's pretty much the norm. Well, it's really interesting to think about the trail that has been blazed by you and, and some of that whole cadre of folks that have uh, in many ways really just made this, this fabric richer uh, because of that unique experience. So let's pivot from that part to this mm -hmm. other element of teamwork and collaboration. Mm -hmm. And I know I, I recently read the, the most recent B2B Pulse. Uh, my whole team has read it. Um, it's called The New Growth Equation. 
There's so much to discuss, but for benefit of our viewers, can you just share a little bit about the research and start with just what is the B2B Pulse? Sure, and I'm so delighted that you're finding it useful and others are as well. B2B Pulse, um, you know, it started off, gosh, seven years ago as what we were calling omni-channel sales insights in B2B at a time when a lot of people, even some of my colleagues, frankly, were like omni-channel and B2B, what's that? That's a consumer okay. thing. And there were a group of us, you know, pounding the table that things are really changing out there. It's not just a field sales or an inside sales game anymore, like rise of e-commerce, much more use of third parties, digital and remote. So we were on to studying that by researching buyers and sellers and asking lots of questions around how do you like to interact? Who does it the best? What are your pain points? If you're a customer, are there suppliers you would give more share of wallet to if they were better at certain kinds of interactions? So we've been looking at these things prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. And then, gosh, you know, once the unfortunate pandemic hit, we realized we better be asking these questions a lot, you know, a lot more frequently, hence the pulse. So the B2B pulses now, um, what, what we had as our kind of omni-channel sales insights background on a much more faster uh, cadence over a larger number of industries. We cover um, 12 industries, 14 countries now. So pretty much every major, every major sector. And we've been looking at different points in time and um, have over 21,000 decision makers now in the database from both the buy side and the sales side across those sectors and those countries. And our last pulse was late November, early December, depending on where in the world we were of last year. Jennifer, one of the things I love about it, and I think as you know, we, we have an executive roundtable at Allego, and I reference your material, I send it out in advance of Thank you. <laughs> the meetings, oh, I'm serious. And and the the key, the piece that you just described, there's two elements. One, this notion of omni-channel, there are people who, when they first hear that, they think, yeah, I know about that. But the reality is it's a new context in the way that you're describing it. That's number one. And this notion that the 21,000 are not just sellers, they're yes. 21,000 buyers and sellers. That's another example of, it's a completely different data set when you include both sides of the equation versus just one side. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, it, and, and every company has buyers and sellers in them. So sometimes we, we don't know always who we capture, right? When we go out to do the pulse, we intentionally you know, offer people the ability to be anonymous. We do cover everything from kind of a typical SMB all the way through to a large global corporation. But maybe in that global corporation, you get more of the sales view from one company, more of the procurement view um, from another company, but very intentional so that we could also match up any disconnects between what customers want and what sellers are offering. And that's really, you know, I live kind of my life and I, I know you, you do as well in that sales arena of trying to help organizations understand that the lens is not how you want to sell or how your competitors sell. The lens needs to be what your customers need and how you can help your customers solve their problems and therefore, how should you sell to them? How should you interact with them? And it seems so straightforward and simple, but it's not really because companies are very entrenched and wedded to the structures, you know, the selling structures that they've had set up for many years. It's so true. I mean, again, when you hear what you just said to someone hearing this the first time, they may think, well, isn't that, of course, how it is? And the answer is largely no. 
because people have been informed by a pipeline and they think in terms of these stages and they forget that the buyer doesn't actually think of themselves as a marketing qualified lead just because they're at this point in the sales <laughs> process, right? Exactly, exactly. You know, I'll give you an example. I was having this conversation yesterday with a client, um, has a very large field force, also an inside force, digital presence as well. And, you know, I, I remember the, the client said to me, like, are you sure? Someone really wants to buy online. And I said, yes, I'm sure. In fact, <laughs> in fact, for what you're selling, I would venture, I would hazard a guess that a majority of your customers would like to buy a substantial number of your products online. That's not to say they don't value your salespeople. And that's really what I think is the, the rub and also the excitement of omni-channel. It's not either or. It's always an and. It's yes, give me digital. Yes, give me the ability to buy on my own terms, on my own time. And yes, give me the expertise of the humans who are deeply expert in solutions and can engineer or design um, very complex offers for me. I want all of it. And I think a lot of times sales organizations, especially if they're very field or inside and or inside driven, they have this lens that like the digital self-serve model is a competitor right. to the to their people and not a compliment. And we just hear over and over again from customers that no, it's a compliment. We just want it to work seamlessly and we don't we don't want to be pushed around. We we want to interact on our own terms. You know, as you said that, Jennifer, it reminds me that in the improv world, there's one simple framework that's pretty much true across the globe, and it's the notion of yes and, right? So whatever whatever your partner has said, it's yes and. And so in, in the same way, you know, that's I love that framework as you just described it, because I do want to double click on what I'll call the two. There was so much in this last pulse, but there were two big parts that jumped out at me. First, the personalization element. And then, as you've described it, this rise of omni-channel, which is really about more channels equaling more growth, hence, yes, and. And then there's this real need for omni-channel orchestration today. Now, obviously, this really resonated to me because the book that we wrote called Mastering Virtual Selling, mm -hmm. the subtitle is Orchestrating Sales Success, and the picture is an orchestra conductor, you, you know, basically building on that, that metaphor. So can you explain some of the emphasis in this pulse on personalized communication and, and the role of that type of communication in sales today? Yeah, sure. Happy to mark. And by the way, love, love, love that publication. Really an of the moment necessity for sales teams to really figure out how to not just survive, but thrive in this virtual world and to see themselves not just as responding to the circumstances in which we all found ourselves in these last two years, but stepping back and asking like, how can I use my ability to empathize with customers, network with customers to rise above and become more of a journey orchestrator and really help customers connect across these different channels. And for us, when we say Omni, like I truly do mean all. And so it's a, it's a very intentional use, um, a use of the term because customers do want all channels. And when I say channels, by the way, I mean everything you could possibly imagine as a distinct interaction with a customer. So texting two people, human to human, that's yes. a channel, right? Yep. Buying online in an e-commerce motion where you're clicking to buy, that's a channel. Text or uh, chatting online, that's another channel. So when we add all, all of those interactions, we come to like 35 plus different ways of interacting. So when I say one of the big ahas is, most B2B customers are already engaged on 10 or more channels 
like the classic thinking would be, how can that be? There's just like, you know, e-commerce inside distributor field sales. There's just four. No, 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 no. Right. There's 35 plus. And the average B2B company who responds to that desire from customers, the ones who offer more in particular, seven seems to be the magic number, seven or more ways of, of interacting tend to grow share faster. So that was one kind of point that I always hand back to our clients when they say, are you sure? I say, yes, I am sure because I'm looking at the facts and I've been looking at these facts. And this number is one of the most consistent ones over the last, not just two years, Mark, six, seven years. Every time we do this research, more channels being used by customers and more sales organizations that offer more channels tend to grow faster. I mean, Again, it's just, it's so, uh, when you hear it, you just come to realize that it's so powerful to be able to um, think in those terms. And yet, I know there are some people, Jennifer, when they're listening to this, and I'm just imagining some of our more highly regulated industries, and they're thinking to themselves, well, how do I adapt this idea of channel orchestration to reaching the right audience at the right time with the right message? If, If we abstract it up, What's the mental framework you think about? And what I mean by that is, mm-hmm. is it is it a best practice to ask the customer what's your preferred communication style or just sort of follow how they go? What, what do you find? A hundred percent, yes. Asking <laughs> is always the place to start. So one of the things that came out of our B2B Pulse is what we call the rule of thirds. And by this, what we mean is the average customer in any industry, regulated industries or highly regulated industries, inclusive, tell us consistently. I want roughly a third of my interactions remote, like we're doing right now. I want a third of them traditional, like come visit me at my place of business. And I want a third of them fully digitized, self-serve, like no live synchronous human interaction. And it doesn't matter the industry, doesn't matter the stage of the buying process, you know, whether you're first time customer, net new, you're an existing customer, you're renewing um, and you're loyal, et cetera. That rule of thirds pretty much holds true everywhere. So I work a lot, by the way, in um, medical technology and financial services. And my message to the clients in those industries is the exact same, which is let's go ask. Let's ask the physicians who are working um, at the sites of care and see how they like to receive information. Like let's ask um, the the corporate treasurers or the small business owner who have a need for financial services, banking and payments offers, like how they'd like to interact. And I, I can, um, I mean, I, I don't take bets because of course I cannot do that, but I'd be willing to if I were allowed <laughs> that I will know what the results of that research is going to be when we get um, when we get to the end of it. And that is that the rule of thirds will pretty much hold true in both those contexts. Wow. That's a very interesting insight right there. Uh, just to start to orient your brain and it goes back to sort of yes and, right? It's it's not that one is necessarily even displacing the other. It's just that it's additive in many senses. And if you can't if you can't speak those different languages, you're at a disadvantage. Um, I do want to pivot though to an area where I know you based on some of your past experience, I read in the the most recent pulse that roughly 40% of organizations have added hybrid sellers to their ranks over the, the last couple of years, two years in particular for the pandemic and that this role set to become the second most prominent B2B sales role over the next three years. So how does the profile of sales teams within, uh, what is that profile of sales teams within organizations and and what impact, if any, does it have on culture, collaboration, or or even customer experience? 
Yeah, so hybrid seller, people who work in really any dimension can, and so even as I think about where we started this conversation, I said, oh, I worked in an inside call center, so inside field, right? Very classic roles. And in the hybrid world, you're both. You might actually be at a call center with other colleagues a day or two a week. Maybe those are the, that's the time for the team to come together, discuss best practices. Maybe you're doing some pipeline generation and outbound calls. Maybe another two days of the week, you're out in the field, traveling and visiting customers, making proposals, checking in on recent deliveries, having QBRs or, or those sorts of things. And then maybe the fifth day of the week, you're actually at home dealing with maybe CRM or internal calls or training programs or things like that. So that's the hybrid sales motion, all those different channels, frankly, that you can be operating in based on what you need for, you know, to execute your job for your company, and then also what your customers need and what they're asking for. So this notion of you sign up to a company and you're 100% in the field or you're 100% inside, that's what we're seeing has really blurred um, for a number of firms. And even as we kind of come back in, in most um, most markets to a world where travel is possible and being face-to-face -face and on-site with customers is possible. We also can't really unring the bell of the last two years where everybody figured out that you can actually conduct a chunk of business in a remote way. Yes. So with that being the case, you know, it makes sense to have hybrid sellers, right? It makes sense from a customer's perspective. It can make sense from a company perspective, um, trying to keep and attract talent who may not want to be on the road five days a week, trying to keep and attract talent who may want to travel a little bit and not be, you know, in a call center five days a week. So I think it actually really opens the aperture for the kinds of people who would be attracted to sales as a profession and therefore should make, you know, a, a talent strategy, a, a, an overall talent strategy, um, maybe much more flexible for the typical sales, sales organization. It's a great pivot to just talk about uh, this whole future of the workforce. And you know we've been talking about cultivating talent, but um, I know you work with a lot of C-suite leaders yourself. You work across a, a wide range of industries, the, the regulated and some that are not directly regulated. What is it, in your opinion, that sets the best leaders apart? Oh, well, I have a few colleagues who have a book out now on like what makes a great CEO and they may dispute this, but I think I've got two that are in the mix. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully consistent. The first is speed. I, I, I know that that may sound pretty basic, but if I look back over the last two years, it's like 10 years of, of improvements in digitization sped up and happened over the course of like 10 to 18 months. Like everything just got condensed so quickly in terms of the different ways in which we could interact, receive information, process information. I mean, it's been a real sea change. And so for leaders who are slow to adapt in a world where speed is prioritized by customers, by the way, it's also you know, especially prioritized by customers, um, even more so now that there's so much they can actually do and accomplish, um, accomplish digitally. I think there's a real downside to being too deliberate. And that, I'm not saying take risk. What I am saying is 
the old ways of working where maybe you had to check things off with three, four, five different individuals in your corporate hierarchy before you would pilot a new change or, you know, test something out with a customer. Like customers, they don't have time for that anymore and they really want you to move faster. So how can companies embrace more agile ways of working, put the decision makers in the same decision-making pods and instead of going through five layers of hierarchy, maybe you have three of those five people in the same room talking at the same time, room can be virtual by the way, um, and making that decision. So, you know, I think uh, setting organizations up and as I think about sales in particular, setting sales teams up in a way that allows for that kind of agility. So your point on regulated industries, well, if you need um, risk compliance legal in the mix before you can put out marketing messages or to review sales collateral for a pitch, instead of the you know, sequential hierarchy. What if you just have someone from one or more of those functions who's part of the weekly sales stand up and review and can do that live together with the sales team? That's what I'm talking about when I talk about like the ability to work faster and the ability to work in an agile fashion. I, um, I, I like that. I like that one a lot. And I'm going to, the subtext I'm giving in my mind, as you said, that is uh, the subtext, the rationale for speed in the way you just described it, Jennifer, is this notion of a sense of urgency. And if you go back to that point, the old way of, well, we're going to send it to legal and then sequentially legal is going to send it to risk and then risk like th th that can be weeks or months. And there are other agile competitors who have already released it by that time. So there's a there's a rationale. This isn't speed for the sake of speed. There's a rationale. Um, what's your what's your second one? We really do live in a world where the notion of one's kind of personal and also community identity and your occupation have become much more inextricably linked. And some other McKinsey research that we did recently, 70 plus percent of employees said that their sense of purpose, their sense of being in the world is in large part defined by their work. And think about it, Mark, right? When you ask people, what do you do? You don't often get the answer, I do sales and marketing consulting. You right. get the answer, I'm a consultant. I yes. am a consultant, right? Yes. So that weaving of the two together, I think that's the, the second big thing that I'm seeing in terms of, you know, when we think about the future of work, organizations being very conscious and intentional about the purpose for which they exist, and then looking to attract talent who are also drawn to that purpose because it has, you know, a deeper meaning for them as individuals. What's your experience in your practice with helping clients figure out how to operationalize what we're talking about? Uh, maybe I'll start with two reflections, Mark, and thanks for that question. The one is that your frontline sales manager, regardless of where they are, remote, in the field, hybrid, right? they are the force multiplier for helping sales representatives, account managers become more skilled and capable professionals. You get it right at the management level, you will 90% get it right for everybody else. You skip the management level, no. chances are it's, you know, you're just, you're missing opportunities. And that's not to say there aren't um, training and upskilling situations that are unique to and helpful for certain, you know, so certain cohorts of individuals. It's just that 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 frontline management is such a plays such a critical role, and it's also, I think, a reminder that that is what they are there for. They are there to coach, to develop, to support, to help be that force multiplier. And in so many organizations, and I have no doubt you've seen this as well. A lot of times it's the star salesperson that gets promoted to sales manager. And then the, the, the um, uh, kind of gut reaction, if you will, when maybe sales reps are running into challenges is to let me step in and 
sell again instead yes. of manage and instead of coach. So to me, that the, the first answer to that question is like, get it right for the frontline managers and enroll them in the process. The second piece I would say, and this is you know something I know is so important to you and your organization, but it is principles of adult learning. Do not forget that people learn in very, very different ways. And now that we are living in an omni-channel world with the rise of hybrid sellers, you've got to layer in, not only do people learn in different ways, but we're connecting in different ways. So right. having virtual options that are synchronous and asynchronous, having certification opportunities that meet people where they are on their learning journey so that we're not kind of over or underestimating someone's capabilities, having the ability to be in person or go to third party or, you know, third party firms and get support and help. Like all of that needs to be in the mix when we think about um, when we think about training this, uh, training a sales organization and also not just training, but inspiring, right? If you're taking all this time to be with people, to help them improve professionally, I think it's important to, you know, back to the, your, your question on purpose, you know, provide a sense of inspiration, provide a sense of connectedness and belonging. And sometimes I think we can miss the mark when we are, um, when we're just thinking about what's the skill that we are building here. And, and that leads me to sort of wrap uh, with, uh, I'll call it the Monday morning question. And, you know, we've covered a lot in this conversation. And if you had to give some immediate and actionable takeaways to the audience, what do you think is the first thing Monday morning they should do to future-proof their sales and marketing strategy? I love and hate these questions, Mark. <laughs> um, because as we both know, like sales is, it's, it's, a, it's a complex function. It's not as straightforward, I think, as maybe from the outside some might expect it to be. But I will answer you and give you one answer. And I think it's around technology. Um, if, if the sales manager is the force multiplier for skill building, having facility um, in a sales organization with technology is the force multiplier for your entire organization and for your customer's own experience. And by technology, I don't just mean CRM. That's an important piece. And we know sales people spend a lot of time engaging, engaging with that. But I mean the ability to be um, capable and to feel confident on multiple technical platforms. So if you have to give you know, a presentation or a proposal in pick one of any flavor of, uh, of virtual rooms, your sales teams are ready to do that. If you need to buddy up with someone who is managing you know, the chat box on your, web, you know, on your website to be able to answer technical questions, your, re your team is ready and capable or there's parts of your team that are ready and capable to do that. So I think just the, the notion that um, there are multiple technical platforms that salespeople need to have agility with. Like that is just a must do. And so my, my Monday morning action would be for in particular sales executives to step back and ask the question, how much of my sales capacity could I put on any digital platform today? And they would know exactly what to do. And then depending on what the answer to that question is, now you're having a conversation of like next stage of training of what we need to get help with. Well, Jennifer, I have to ask you one more now that you've said that, because I think I know the answer, but I don't want to presume. And so based on this entire discussion, your life experience, what do you believe is the single most important skill that salespeople should learn or improve today to bring more value to that buyer's journey we've been talking about? Ask great questions. Don't tell. Like be super curious. Everybody wants to talk about themselves and their experience, 
customers want human connection. They, they're, they're, they're yearning to tell you information about their problems and their pain points because they want someone who can solve them. So ask great questions. I love it. I love that answer. And, and I, you know, if you, if you really think about this, if we could just use the Google metaphor to wrap up what you just described, you know, if, if you can think of the right way to ask almost any question in Google, you can get the answer. And in, and in the same way, if you take the time to carefully think about, without overwhelming them, a few of the right questions, your, your point is spot on. Most times, if there's rapport and trust, people will tell you because their goal is to get the thing they want to buy and they exactly. want to help them do it. So this has been a fantastic conversation. Jennifer, I'll tell you, we've just really appreciated our interaction with you, with your team, with McKinsey. We appreciated the, um, the role that you played in, in some of the um, articles and, and reports that we've published and being part of some of the things that you're doing. And uh, just want you to know we're looking forward to continuing this collaboration. So are we. And thank you so much, Mark. It's been such a delight to get to know you personally and to get to know more of your team. And you know, I'm always up for talking about anything related to sales. So thank you for that. You've been listening to The Adapter's Advantage, a podcast from Alego. Stay connected by subscribing to the show at alego.com forward slash podcast, leaving us a rating and comment and sharing episodes you love. That helps us bring you more conversations about breakthrough moments that lead to success. Thanks for listening. Until next time, remember that one new idea can change your life.